Um, so there was a book that was published in uh, 2020 that ended up winning just about every single Christian book award there was to get. And it was written by a guy named Carl Truman and called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, Truman states the premise of the book right off the bat, and he says this, How is it possible that the following sentence, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, can go from being virtually unintelligible and incoherent some 25 years ago to something today that is patently unarguable, all within the space of one generation. What you can imagine, the rest of the book, of course, is 450-some-odd pages of very carefully argued modern philosophy about how we got there. But that doesn't mean that the average person can't follow exactly what's going on here. And while I have a couple little quibbles here and there with Truman, I think he is absolutely correct when he says that the chief determining factor that undergirds the conversations that we are presently having in our culture about gender is due to the fact that there has been a shift in the very idea of identity formation. This is very big. We have shifted the way in which someone understands themselves from things that come from the outside of them to finding our identity as something that comes from the inside, the feelings, the intuition, psychology. Let's see if I can explain. A hundred years ago, if you were to ask somebody, tell me who you are, they would say, well, I'm the son of my parents. I, I'm a doctor or I'm a homemaker. I'm a lawyer. Maybe I'm a parent to these three children of mine. Other people might say, I am a Christian. I'm whatever it is that God says that I am. In short, they would draw their self-understanding off of something outside of themselves. Does that make sense? But if you haven't noticed, those days are over, Truman argues. Now it is the self that is, defines who I am and what I feel on the inside of how I picture myself. I am who I imagine myself to be. I've been told since the smallest of ages that I can be whoever I want to be. I'm a Christian, and I look up and I say that all I am, therefore, is the summation of my desires, especially, by the way, my sexual desires, for reasons I'll get to in just a moment. But what Truman says is, is this, this internalization of the self is very simply the ground in which all of our conversations presently are taking place. That's the ground. Uh, the one pastor that I was listening to on this particular topic said, look, don't assume that I'm simply talking about the way secular people think. We all are infected with this kind of thinking. Think about how you understand your job. Do you go to work because you believe what you do meaningfully contributes to a flourishing community? Or do you work because you get a sense of fulfillment from it? See the subtle difference? Or think about your marriage. Are you married because of the promises that you made years ago while dressed in a tuxedo or a white dress in front of a minister or something? Or are you married because you feel fulfilled in that relationship? And of course, if that goes away, not really sure how long I'm going to be married after that. How about this? Consider your salvation. Even Christians think this way. In other words, am I a Christian because of what Jesus did for me 2,000 years ago on the cross? Or am I a Christian because I feel his work inside me? 
I have this peaceful, easy feeling that tells me that I'm loved. So my point is, is this is not something that's just about those bad secular people out there. There has been a profound shift in Western public life. And in my opinion, I think that Truman is right when he says, this is the reason why we have a deepening polarization in our culture. We're all pursuing self as the only way to understand the world around me. No wonder there's so little agreement that can be found between us. And isolation and loneliness are absolutely on the rise. That's what happens. But of course, this fall, we're looking at the book of Genesis and the way in which it lays down this pattern of understanding the world that I promise you was just as radical to an ancient Near Eastern society as it is to the world today. You know, Brian took us through last week about the inherent dignity that humans experience from being created in the image of God. What we find today is that in the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Which is to say, the Bible indeed has a perspective on our maleness and our femaleness, if you will. But today, of course, we are told that our biological sex, our sexual organs that you were born with, have absolutely nothing to do with your gender. That is the, the sense of mannishness or, or womanness that you feel inside, regardless of what genitalia you were born with. And as if to make the matter more confusing, it's also living in a time where religious people's um, views of masculine and femininity are being exposed. Because there are examples left and right that are being highlighted with all the efforts that can be extended in that, on their behalf to show the excesses of biblical masculine leadership and how toxic it's been in the, years, uh, in the last 50 years or so. And honestly, a quick survey of Christian literature about true manhood or biblical womanhood is being scrutinized in fresh ways in our generation. So the question before us this morning is, what does the Bible actually say, or maybe more importantly, actually not say, about human sexuality and God's good design? Because the last half of Genesis 2 gives us the origins of a Christian view of gender. So I simply want to find, ask this question, where does Adam find himself in our passage? Three different ways. I think Adam finds himself alone. He finds himself a helper in Eve. And finally, Adam finds himself in Eve. Let's take that first one. Adam finds himself alone. There's a little textual note that you might not notice your first time through when you read it, but verse 18 is intended to jar you. It's an arresting thought. It says this, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now here's the reason why that's jarring. It's because up until this time, God has been announcing everything to be good. Sky is good. Sun and moon are good. The animals are good. The plants are good. But man being alone, that's not good. Now look, we're going to get to the solution in just a second, but it's worth stopping and asking this question, why? Why is it not good? Well, my wife and I have gotten uh, into, my family really, have gotten into this TV show produced by the Discovery Channel called Alone. The premise of the show is, is these expert, you know, outdoor survivalists are taken into the middle of nowhere and told that they have to survive on a limited amount of equipment. They have to make their shelter for themselves. They've got to feed themselves. And the last one standing wins the half million dollars at the end of the show. 
Um, well, what I found fascinating about this show is, is when you, watch to, when you see to watch people sort of fall out of the competition, it's not the foraging for food that gets them. Uh, it's not the feeling um, of, of, uh, of um, you know, having to go out and hunt on a regular basis. It's not even the tediousness of shelter building that runs them off. What happens is, is these people slowly and certainly go insane from the isolation. That's what happens. People have no contact with people. It ends up atrophying their very souls. And by the way, it's even true for those people who at the beginning of the show are so anxious to say, you know what, actually I'm kind of a loner myself. I'm looking forward to the next couple of months. They're the first ones to crack in the show, for sure. The point, though, is, is that you don't have to be a contestant on a loan to realize how crushing the feelings of loneliness can be. Why? Well, Genesis has an answer to that question. And the answer is simply this, is because you and I are created in the image of a God who is a plurality of persons in his own self-image. That's the reason why. The Christian God, the theologians tell us, is three persons one essence, which means that if mankind is going to be created in the image of a God who is like that, then by definition it is bad for him to be alone. Now, my guess is you've probably heard me say that before, but I want to push this envelope a little further this morning because I think the language that God is employing is so much more than companionship. In other words, God did not sit down and craft for, his, for Adam a, a, a group of drinking buddies to go hang out with. No, what he did was, he said, I'm going to create a being that is going so to fulfill him in ways that he could never imagine that that image itself will become a picture of the absolute profound intimacy and love that is experienced between all three members of the Trinity. That's it. Of course, I'm talking about this union, this sexual union between a man and a woman, because there, in erotic sexual love, man will find something so mind-blowingly profound about the kind of relationship that God wants to have with him that the metaphor itself will come to feel almost like eternity. Um, I'm very, very uh, grateful for the work of a pastor up in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, Robert Cunningham, who is the pastor at uh, Tate's Creek PCA up there. Uh, he, he did a conference on this back in February that I would warmly commend to you. If you want some links to that, just email me this week. But Robert put it this way. He said, the reason why God included erotic love in our creation as image bearers is because erotic love is the closest we come to grasping the essence of the God whose image we bear. Now look, I realize that you're very uncomfortable right now because you're like, uh, that's gross. It sounds less like you're sexualizing the Trinity. But don't mess, mess that up. We are in God's image, not the other way around. No, the Trinity we believe has existed and will always exist, as Clay prayed this morning, in this eternal exchange of forever love, giving and receiving love. And so God said, if these creatures are to reflect me, they must have something like that. Hence the Christian view of sexuality. This is the reason why it feels like eternity when we're having sex, because we're tapping into something profound at the root of our image-bearing selves. 
It also explains, by the way, why this generation who is presently grasping for identity markers for their own souls sees upon sexual desires as they do. Of course they do. There'll be an inclination to, in, to idolize sex and elevate it to something it was never intended to be because it's just that amazing. Nothing comes close. So look at the balance in this text. Yes, God made sex to say something profound about the relationship he has with himself and then invites image bearers to share. But he also puts parameters around the engagement of that activity precisely because he knows its power. In other words, the Bible instructs human beings on sex for the same reason that you would include instructions on the transportation of nitroglycerin. It's dangerous. It's explosively powerful, so handle with care. So the first point is that Adam finds himself alone. Secondly, Adam finds himself a helper in Eve. All right, if you go back to chapter 1 when human beings are created, what you find is the emphasis in the text is on the similarities between Adam and Eve. They're both created in the image of God. Therefore, they're both worthy of the same dignity together. But it's not until chapter 2 where you start to get the differences between the two of them. And the first difference you discover is that Eve is to be a helper for Adam. Now look, before you get all been out of shape, excuse me, with your own associations for what you think a helper is, please understand that the Hebrew word for helper, the Hebrew word azir, has nothing to do with the inherent strength or even the given value of one of the other sexes. The Hebrew dictionary that I consulted defines the word helper as, quote, one who supplies strength in the area that is lacking in the helped. That's all it is. By the way, if you don't like that word, ladies, what you're going to find is in the rest of the New Testament, God himself is viewed as an azir for his people. He's there to provide for what is lacking inside the people who need him. So what you have is this almost comical scene in Genesis 2 where man needs a helper, he needs an azir, and so therefore, let's, let's, let's pass the animals past him. And it's as if God says, well, here you go, Adam. Like, here's a lion. What do you think? And Adam's like, pretty awesome. It's beautiful, powerful, but not quite right. Okay, okay. Well, how about this elephant, Adam? What about that one? He's like, wow. I mean, pretty massive. It's got a great memory, right? Uh, but still not just exactly right. And so what God does is he causes his, <laughs> thank you, the, the memory thing was funny. My wife got that. She's there. She's my helper. <laughs> Sorry. That may be the decongestant talking at this point. So God causes a deep sleep to fall, over, um, to fall over Adam, and suddenly he makes what's known as a helper suitable. But what Robert brings out, and I'm still fascinated by this, so bear with me, is Eve is the first creature that is not made from the dust. I have never noticed this about this text because Adam and the rest of the animals are made from dirt. But Eve is the first creature that is fashioned from another image of God. What does that mean? <laughs> Listen to Robert on this. He says, rightly understood, the full apex of the glory of God is the image of God. But nuancing that further, if you really want to define it, Eve comes out of the image, not dirt so that she is the highest glory in all creation. And therefore, the female body is the greatest beauty in all creation. Robert goes on to say, men are gross. They look like they came from dirt. 
But he says, which is why almost every human culture has made special notice in their popular art of the innate glory and beauty of the female body. I found that fascinating. But look, notice that Adam immediately gets this. Because when he's standing there naked before naked Eve, the first thing that he notices is how their bodies fit together. And verse 23 is the first love poem in the Bible. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, Adam can understand every other part of his body by himself except for one area. But as soon as he sees naked Eve in front of him, he gets it. Because their bodies essentially are almost exactly the same except for one area. Eons later, scientists would discover that every single cell in the human body has 46 chromosomes except one. The sperm cells have 23. The ovum has 23. They are not complete until they are together. Now look, here's my point. For the Christian, our sexual organs are complementary instruments of erotic love, yes. But they are also the nearest that we get to the divine heart of the Trinity. Robert goes on to say, the heavens declare the glory of God, but the sexual organs in the marriage bed, they declare the love of God. It's exactly right. Verse 24 says, and they shall become one flesh. What's being said? There is a sacredness of how the two sexes alone can reveal the mystery of the Trinity's love. It's only there that you see it in that particular union. And I realize you're probably asking yourself, when is he going to stop embarrassing me this morning? Well, I'm not going to for a few more minutes because God reveals himself in scripture to and through human beings. And what he's saying is, if there is something about our genders that is inextricably tied to our biology, and when I say that, you realize that we are fast-tracking our way to a time in which that very sentence I just said could be labeled as hate speech in the culture around us. Because I've just cut across the reigning philosophies of our day. Cultural forces in our world insist that your biological sex has nothing to do with your ideas about gender. That's just not what the Bible says. And so we have to call it out when we're presented with it. However, before you climb onto your high horse and begin your culture warrior ways, may I simply offer to you a small little moderating advice, and that is simply this, that evangelicals, I believe, have often made this conversation even more difficult, especially in the ways in which we have talked in exaggerated ways about sex and gender. In other words, in my research over the last few years over this question, I am much more convinced that often what paps passes for biblical manhood or biblical womanhood are themselves nothing more than cultural stereotypes that should never have been foisted upon people as absolute truth. Should never have been. And I can make my case from multiple places in Scripture. But let's take a glance, and Robert helped me out with this in another podcast that he did on this topic, where, he, where we take the idea, the, the idea of the ideal woman. Proverbs 31, right, ladies? The hammer that you've been beaten with since you were a small child. Are you a Proverbs 31 woman? Well, let's go see. First of all, we find that the Proverbs 31 woman says she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like ships of merchants. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. 
That, that is a hardworking, tenacious person that provides for their family. Well, I mean, I thought men were the sole providers of families. Not this woman. We could go on. She considers a field and buys it. She's an investor. It says also that with the fruit of her hands, she plants vineyards. The image there is of a calloused hands of a farmer who's out there working in the, in the fields. It says thirdly that she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives her merchandise is profitable. She's a savvy entrepreneur and strong. I thought men were the strong ones. Nope, not according to this verse. Another one, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Well, I thought men were the strength of the home. You know, the strong, steady, confident ones, and the women are helpless at home, you know, and, and, and prone to irrational anxieties and whatnot. Nope, not according to this verse. Well, what about the men, right? <laughs> well, I wish we had more time, but I find it very interesting that when you get to the New Testament and the presentation of the ultimate alpha male, Jesus, and Jesus at one point in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 is reflecting on his own internal being. How does he describe himself? He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Is that your instinct of manhood, gentlemen? I thought tenderness and humility were the weak traits. Nope, not Jesus. Look, here's my point, y'all. I think our culture is going completely nuts, and you know it with all of these ideas of gender fluidity and is craving havoc in our world, but it just might be that the rise of this particular line of thinking is happening so that Christians can make another pass at the Bible and say, what is it that I really associate with masculinity and femininity? Are those traits really in the Bible? A perfect segue into my third and final point, and that is that Adam finds himself in Eve. Look, I want to suggest to you that the bond that you see Adam and Eve experiencing for the first time is such a powerful statement to the world about this magnificent gift that God has given us that we only get when we realize that the genders are unique. So that when the Bible portrays the heart of a real man and a real woman, there's echoes of Genesis 2 all the way through it. So let me take a stab at it. Les, what do you think the Bible says about it? Bear with me. Generally speaking, the Bible says that when a man apprehends the world, he does so from a posture of initiation and protection of his loved ones. If you want to call that leadership, fine. As long as you acknowledge that masculine sin natures can quickly turn that servant leadership into tyranny. Likewise, generally speaking, when women apprehend the world, they do so from a posture of service and caretaking. You want to call that submission? Fine. As long as you acknowledge that feminine sin natures can quickly turn that submission into the source of all kinds of under-the-surface personal resentment. And both of these postures, I believe, are reflected in places like Ephesians 5.21 where Paul begins in verse 21 by exhorting both genders, husbands and wives, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, the text says. The woman submits by serving her husband. The husband submits by dying for his wife, laying his life down. I believe that once you start to get beyond those true, very generalized parameters, you're now inviting trouble. Robert Cunningham says that our genders are like two overlapping circles where we share much more in common than we have as a difference. 
Look, there's so much more to argue over our day, but I do think Robert's correct when he says that it's more important for Christians, instead of fighting all the time, to just present a better story about human sexuality. Look, if you don't take anything away from today, please just hear the Bible saying of how sacred is our view of sex. And you hear it and how vital it is to the plan of God's redemption to celebrate and protect the woman's womb. In Genesis chapter 3, you're going to hear, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, you're going to hear God attach these massive promises to Adam and Eve's seed so that time and time again in the Bible, when you see the devil attacking God's plan, he heads straight for the woman's womb. That's where he centers, finds his, uh, his attack. For this reason, Christians have found abortion abhorrent. Not because we're trying to be good culture warriors and win the culture back for Christ or any such thing. No, we hate abortion because the womb is sacred. Over and over again, with the birth of a new child, every Jewish person would see the birth of that child and think, is this the one? We were told in Genesis 3 to wait for the one that would crush the head of the Satan. Could this be the head crusher that will save us from our sins? Until one time in a small town in Nazareth, the archangel approaches a teenage virgin and says to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now look, we're going to do a whole lot more of this talk next week, so come back. But I promise you what we're doing is, is we're now infusing the Bible's view of human sexuality with the most amazing story. And this morning, if you find yourself far more into the secular world's view of sexuality, may I say you are absolutely welcome here. One thousand percent. You've come to the right place. But may I say to you with as much graciousness as I can that it is not because anyone hates you that we suggest that you resist a homosexual sexual urge. But it's because in that kind of sexual union you lose something of the glory of this picture. And we can also say that it is not because we're looking for a cultural power grab that we speak up against the gender-bending rethinking of present sexuality. But it's because in the midst of that, we have lost something about the beauty of the story that God is telling. Because it's in the exclusive place of the marriage bed between one man and between one woman where God gives you a glimpse of his overwhelming love for his people, even the overwhelming love that exists between the plurality of his persons. And not only that, we find out that it's going to be a love that eventually over time, throughout the story of the Bible, is going to save the world. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I've heard your story, and I've listened to the way in which you pattern out your desire for freedom and your desire to live by your own self-expression. I've heard you say, I want to be me. I want to be authentic, and I want to be genuine. But I'm so sorry because that story doesn't come close. It feels lame when you look at this grand weaving tale that God himself is telling about his own person and about the weight of the world. It just doesn't come close. And if nothing else, you could at least listen to that story and see if you don't find it compelling. You can consider that an invitation. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you for inviting us in. Thank you for letting us see how you have laid things out. We ask your forgiveness for the ways in which we have thought about our sex differently. We may have even adopted things that weren't even in your word. We're just as responsible as anyone else for the state in which we find ourselves. So would you let repentance begin in the house of God? Would you cloak us in humility as we stand before verses like this, which patiently instruct us to see exactly who we are in light of your truth? But we also know that it's so easy to get confused that you have to bring us. Would you do that? Walk us through this, Lord Jesus, and bring us to health, bring us to sanity, bring us to joy, all the things that you picture for us in our sexuality. Would you do that? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.